0: Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us.
1: If I was to ask you to tell me who Jesus is, what would you say? How would you describe the Lord Jesus? How would you answer the question of who he is? Well, the general way that we answer that question within Christianity is to just simply say, well, Jesus is God. He is God manifested in the flesh. And that certainly is true. There's nothing wrong with that description at all, certainly. However, the Lord Jesus revealed himself in various other ways besides just announcing that he was God manifested in the flesh. The Lord Jesus was identified as a prophet, and I have done a series of programs on the subject of Jesus as a prophet, While he was here on earth ministering to the people in Israel, while he was conducting his ministry, he was recognized as a prophet, and his function within the communities that he was a part of was the function of a prophet. But now he's been risen from the dead, and he is in the kingdom of heaven at the true tabernacle of our God, and his relationship with us has changed just a little bit in comparison with how he was conducting his ministry when he was here. The relationship that he has with us now is more as a priest as opposed to a prophet. Now, of course, I'm just speaking in generalities. He still does speak to us and relate to us as a prophet. But overall, in his general approach to the people that are here on the earth, he now functions more as a priest, especially to the believers, the people who believe in the Lord Jesus, who have been born again by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And so I'd like to spend the next few broadcasts talking about the Lord Jesus as a priest, just to expand our understanding of our God and how he does relate to us in various ways. Not to diminish the reality that he is our God manifested in the flesh, who is now our Savior, not to diminish that, but just simply to supplement our understanding so that we can have a better appreciation for who he really is in our lives and his involvement in our lives personally and individually. Now, throughout the course of history, people have found themselves associated with priests or wanting to be associated with priests. There have been many priests of various religions throughout the course of history, and there probably always will for the various faiths that have evolved and, of course, for those who are yet to come. The faiths and the religions that will be coming in the future that have not quite been invented yet, there will certainly be priests for those people as well. In general, what happened was that people discovered that there quite likely is a God. Just by looking around and seeing the world that we're a part of, that we are in, it's very difficult to look at the world and not admit that there is a God. It's very challenging. I have seen this happen quite often. I used to work in computer science, providing computational support for bioinformatics and computational biology, and I have worked with various biologists and chemists and physicists, I've worked with a lot of people on very interesting and creative advanced research projects, and I can tell you that on occasion, a person will recognize that there is some evidence that there is a God in general because there is no other explanation available, and I always found it very curious to see how difficult it was for them to deny the reality that was right in front of them. I could just see the expressions on their faces, change and alter, recognizing that the evidence before them was just totally obvious, and yet they were so unwilling to accept the possibility that maybe there was a God, they just simply pushed the evidence aside, put it out of their mind, thinking that that was just an unacceptable conclusion, that there must be an alternative conclusion that we just haven't discovered yet. And if we could just be given enough time, some more time, then eventually... A rational explanation will eventually come and explain these unknown things that we cannot understand because it seems to be so obvious that there is a creator, and yet that is so unacceptable that we have to wait for a greater understanding through our scientific explorations. That's how many scientists approach the issue. However, others, they recognize that the evidence is clear. But then what happens is, is that when they recognize that there is enough evidence to convince them personally that there probably is a God, what are they going to do? Because at that point, it becomes obvious to them that they don't know this God. I mean, if I look around and I see that the evidence is clear that there is a God, and then I recognize, my goodness, I don't know who this God is, well, that's a very serious revelation. Especially when you consider if he is real, if there really is a God, and I obviously don't know who he is, the revelation of discovering that I don't know who he is, maybe he doesn't know me either. Maybe I won't ever have a relationship with him in any way whatsoever. And What happens when I physically die? If there is a God who has created all things, perhaps I might be brought before him and I'll have to give an account for my behaviors and actions while I was here on earth. Who knows what that may look like? That's a very important question. That's a very important issue and needs some kind of resolution. There needs to be a resolution because if it is true that there is a God, obviously this God transcends physical life, the life that we have here physically on earth. And so if that's the case, if he has created us to be who we are right now, especially beings that recognize the reality that there is an eternity of some kind, well, then that certainly gives some evidence to show that we will live throughout all eternity, that we will actually live on in our spirits in some sense and in some way. Otherwise, what kind of a God would this be? A God who creates a people or a being like us, and yet he does not have the ability or the capacity or the willingness or perhaps even the desire for us to have a relationship with him throughout all eternity? That certainly wouldn't make any sense at that point. And so if a person recognizes that there probably is a God and they don't know who this God is, and they want to find some way to have some connectivity with him, well, then their only alternative is to try to find a mediator of some sort. Because if the God of the universe obviously is not taking time out of his busy schedule to interact with us directly, then perhaps we need to find someone who may have the ability to connect with him And through that individual, we may be able to connect with him and have some association with him. So perhaps he may know who we are. Perhaps we may grow to know who he is. And at this point comes the birth of a priest. This is the purpose of a priest at this point. In many cultures, in many religions, the purpose of the priest is the one who mediates between you and God to provide you with an opportunity to have some connectivity with God. And without this priest, you cannot have any connectivity with this God. Now, where is this person going to come from? Who is this person who is going to fulfill this office? Who is going to take on this responsibility between God and the people? Well, this person can either be elected, a group of people can just simply ask a person if they will personally take this role, take this responsibility and be a priest on their behalf. That certainly can be done. We would consider that priest to be a man-made priest in that context. Or perhaps this priest may be a representative of God. And so the first priest would be a representative of the people. And then the second priest would be a representative of God, that he would simply show up and say, God has sent me to you. Now, we would hope that he would be telling the truth. Maybe he was lying. And he's simply capitalizing on the needs of the people who recognize that they are disconnected from their God. That could easily be the case. And so we either have a God-made priest or a man-made priest. God-made priest in the sense that he is representing God to us. However, we have to assume that he's actually telling the truth. Or we can have a man-made priest, one who we establish or we elect for the purpose of being a priest for us, to act as an intermediary on our behalf to represent us before our God. And so the man-made priest is a priest who will represent the people before God, and we would have hope that the priest would be telling the truth if he was representing God, being a representative of our God to us then that is a God-made priest. But then, of course, there is a third category, and that would be a self-made priest. Now, technically, I think that throughout the world and all the various religions that I am aware of, with the exception of, of course, the Lord Jesus and what he did and who he is, that all priests are technically self-made. However, I'll give the benefit of the doubt that perhaps the Lord may have sent somebody somewhere along the lines. I'll talk about Aaron in just a moment as an example of definitely a God-made priest. However, the alternative would be a self-made priest, a self-made priest, just an individual, a person who decides that they are going to be a priest, and then they go about and they convince other people that they are a priest, and they will be a representative of God, or they will be a representative of the people. But in this case, I personally believe more than anything that they are representing themselves. And I believe that most priests actually fit into that category, that they are either self-made priests representing themselves, or they are man-made priests representing people. When it comes to a God-made priest, well, that has to be someone who the Lord, our God, officially establishes himself. And we only have one example of that outside of the Lord Jesus in the course of history that we have at our disposal, and that is the God who set the children of Israel free from bondage in Egypt took them out into the wilderness in Arabia, and it was there that our God officially declared a certain individual to be his priest. That was Aaron, Moses' brother. Aaron was established as a priest to represent the people. Moses did function somewhat as a priest previously, but the priesthood that he held more than anything was as a representative of God. He represented God. For example, in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, Moses describes the laws that were given by God to him to be given to the people. Of course, in Exodus chapter 20, God tried to give the laws directly to the people without an intermediary, without a priest. He attempted to do that, but the people were not interested in hearing from God personally. Instead, they asked for Moses to be The mediator or the representative or in this context a priest as a representative of God to find out what laws our God wanted the people to obey and then he would deliver those laws to the people and so in that context Moses was a representative of God through the giving of the law as described in the book of Exodus However, because of the condition of humanity, we know that we are not capable of living in obedience to the law, as it was given through Moses, that has been revealed clearly through the New Covenant. However, the Lord made a provision for this inadequacy that we have through the book of Leviticus, which starts out with sacrifices, sacrifices for the failure that we would have, sacrifices for failure to live in obedience to the law. And Leviticus is also the foundationary text for the priesthood, which was represented by Aaron. Aaron was then set up as a priest in order to deal with the issues related to violating the law. Moses was the representative of God to give the law to the people, and Aaron was the representative of the people to provide atonement before our God. So those were the two forms of priests that were represented through Moses and Aaron. Again, Moses being the representative of God and Aaron being the representative of the people. Now, in order for the Levitical priesthood to function, it needed to be funded because there was a lot of labor involved in order to operate, in order to function as the priesthood, the representative of the people before their God. They needed to have funding, they needed to have materials, they needed to have wealth, They needed to have resources in order to fulfill the obligations that were described by our God that they would have to fulfill as our mediators, as our representatives. And also to enforce other laws, it was necessary for them to have the time to function as a government in order to oversee issues such as public health and condemning buildings and resolving conflicts, conducting trials, those kinds of things. There had to be somebody who had an official position to perform those responsibilities, and the Levitical priesthood was established for that purpose. Effectively, the Levitical priesthood was the governing authority over the other tribes of Israel. And this, of course, was financed with the tithe. The tithe was given to fund the Levitical priesthood so that they could resolve conflicts, so that they could deal with issues concerning public health and safety condemning buildings, declaring people to be unclean, exiling people if necessary, stuff like that. In order for the Levitical priesthood to actually operate and function, they needed resources to do that. The tithe was instituted for that purpose. And of course, there were some additional restrictions that were placed on the Levitical priesthood, such as they could not own land, they could not own possessions, that they were not permitted to have an inheritance of the land like the other tribes were allowed to have, they actually depended on the success of the people in order to sustain themselves and their operations. And so what happened was, was that the Levitical priesthood was established as a priesthood to represent the people before God. But their ability to operate that way, their ability to survive, depended on the success of the other tribes, of the other people. Now, in this context, it would be very easy then, for the priesthood to eventually lose sight of the reality that they exist for the purpose of serving the people, and instead they may begin to consider that perhaps the people may exist to serve them, because the people would present their tithes and offerings, and in return, the biblical priesthood would provide the services of a government in response to that, in return to that, but it would be very easy, and this does always happen in general within all governmental structures. Eventually, the government begins to operate as though the people exist to serve them instead of them existing to serve the people. This is a natural corruption that always takes place and it is impossible to avoid. The only way to resolve this particular issue is to completely replace everyone who is in power and re-establish a new power and a new authority with people who recognize that they exist to serve the people, not that the people exist in order to serve them, but that has to do with character and morality and things like that that are very difficult to find as all societies eventually begin to decay. And, of course, the Levitical priesthood was no exception concerning this or the nation of Israel as a whole. We have plenty of examples throughout the course of history recorded in the Old Testament of Israel rising and falling and rising and falling and a new king would come up and he would be a good king and a new king would come up and he would be a bad king and the Levitical priesthood would function at one time but it would not function at another time. This is a reality that was clearly described within the Old Covenant as well. We have no exception here either. But what is unique is that this priesthood was set up by the living God, not by other people or by a priesthood trying to assert their own authority as a government over people. This was definitely quite unique. But, of course, the Levitical priesthood eventually failed. Now, it did not officially fail until after the Lord Jesus conducted his ministry. And the reason why I say that is because it was reinstituted after the Maccabean Wars, While it was out of style for a few hundred years, here and there, it did eventually get reestablished after the Maccabean Wars, and when the Lord Jesus came on the scene, the Levitical priesthood was relatively functional, at least to a certain extent, and continued to function until 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed the last time. Since then, it's been about 2,000 years, and so, given that kind of time gap, I feel confident in saying that the Levitical priesthood came to an end at that point. But again, I also recognize that the Levitical priesthood will be established once again when the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem, which I do believe will eventually happen probably quite soon. And when that happens, the Levitical priesthood will be re-invoked, it will be reestablished, and will begin to once again assert authority over the people in the land of Israel. I have no doubt that that will happen. But in the meantime, what happened was, was that there was a power shift from the Levitical priesthood to the rabbis of synagogues. Because when the temple was destroyed, the only opportunity for religious life or for the teaching of the Torah, of the scriptures, of the law, was only found in the synagogues. That was the only opportunity. The opportunity to study these things was only available in the synagogues. And these synagogues were established throughout the world under the supervision of various rabbis. And so the rabbis then assumed the role of priests in their local communities. When the Levitical priesthood was functional, the rabbis did not assert this kind of power and authority over the people. But after the temple was destroyed and the Levitical priesthood was disbanded, the rabbis generally took this role. They took this position after that change in Israelite society. And throughout the past 2,000 years, they've been very effective in maintaining what they could concerning the Jewish faith, the Jewish religion. They have kept the people together as a nationalistic identity. They have definitely kept the Jewish people alive as a people, as a people group, as a distinct people group. They have functioned very well with the authority that they had at their disposal and that they still have at their disposal. And they certainly have bound the people together, or at least they have been bound together within their congregations. And this is something I can definitely relate to, spending time in various synagogues throughout my life. I definitely can tell you, I can testify that there is a very strong bond within the synagogues that are headed up by rabbis, but the people are very much bonded together. They are bonded together by the common language of Hebrew, Even though it's very unusual to find a Jew who actually knows what the words mean, the language is used in the liturgy, and that's effectively what binds the people together from a linguistic point of view. However, there's a cultural community there that everyone recognizes that they are all part of the same family, that they are all part of the same nationalistic identity. Even though they may be citizens of various countries, everyone knows that they are actually citizens of the nation of Israel that is just simply in exile right now, but will one day eventually be reestablished. And when that happens, then our nationalistic identity will be much clearer. And so there is a very strong bond within the synagogues individually that are headed up by the rabbis. And it's a very powerful bond that does keep people together as a community, and through the social and religious pressures that are there, often it keeps people in line, often it keeps people from turning to other faiths, often it keeps people from believing in the Lord Jesus, that's for sure, because if you decide to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, then you will be cast out, effectively, from the synagogue. If not cast out, you will be looked at as a second-class citizen, or perhaps ridiculed, I wouldn't say perhaps. I know you will be ridiculed in various ways. As an individual and as a person, you will be looked upon as a traitor. There are various pressures that will be placed on you, and when you consider that this is going to come from your family or perhaps the people who you work with or do business with, then there is great risk in losing connectivity and a bond with your family, and there's a great risk that you might lose your job or your ability to conduct business anymore. There's great risk involved, and so It's very difficult for a person, for a Jew who is actively participating in a synagogue, to turn away from the faith that is expressed in the synagogue, to turn towards faith that is revealed in Christ Jesus as the true Messiah, because they are definitely not the same at all. It's very difficult. It's very challenging. But eventually, what we expect to see is the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And when that happens, at that point, all of the synagogues that have people bound to each other within them, when the temple is reconstructed, when that happens, then all of the synagogues will be bound together through the temple. When the temple in Jerusalem is built, there will be a great resurgence of faith, there will be a great movement of all of the synagogues now being bound together through the common reality Of the temple in Jerusalem. They all are already bound in a certain way because of the nationalistic structure of the nation of Israel, the country that is established there right now. But when the temple is rebuilt, then there will be a much more powerful bond between all of the synagogues with each other. That will be a new movement, a resurgence of faith as people then have an opportunity to truly worship God as they believe they are permitted to. Before the temple is built, there are restrictions concerning how you can worship your God, but when the temple is rebuilt at that point, then you will be able to live in obedience to all of the commandments as God described. That will be the perception of the people within the synagogues, and there will be a renewed movement to encourage people to actually live as their forefathers once did, Worship God as was described in the Old Covenant in the Law of Moses. There will be a renewed movement to direct people in that way. But this certainly is nothing new in the Christian world. This will be new in the Jewish world, but it certainly is not new to the Christian world because we have a lot of this already in the Christian world. There are many churches, for example, that are bound together by a common denomination just as the various synagogues will eventually be bound together by the temple and by the high priest and the Levitical priesthood so also there are many Christian churches that are actually bound together by their denominations in a very similar way this is something that many of us know a lot about and these churches are structured for the purpose of not showing a person who Christ Jesus is that's not why they are there They are generally there in order to provide you with an opportunity to engage in rituals, in ceremonies, in liturgy, in community activities, in service projects, in all kinds of things that would describe the church more as a religious entertainment center than a place where a person can grow to know the Lord Jesus as a person and their God for who he is. I know many of you will understand exactly what I'm talking about when I say this. I was driving around just recently, and I saw a sign that was advertised from a particular Protestant church as an example, and it said, Peace Through Ritual. And I thought, that is so ridiculous. How could anybody possibly believe that? And then I realized, well, I I believed it at one point. It's not... Unrealistic to consider that others might believe it now as well, and they just simply don't know the difference. But to me, in comparison with the peace that I have through knowing the person of my God, there is no way that I could possibly return to any exercise of ritual because there is nothing real in rituals except what may be displayed through my own flesh. But to me, that is totally unnatural in comparison with the natural of what many people consider to be the supernatural. That I believe that my God and his relationship with me is the most natural, peaceful, restful experience that I could possibly ever have on this earth. And these other things just simply have nothing to offer In comparison with that. And so I certainly believe that there are many of you who are listening to this who understand exactly what I'm talking about. You have seen this, you have experienced this. I will continue on this subject in the next broadcast.